I'll stand up here before you today and tell you that I am grateful and thankful on this Father's Day, and most of all, for the love that God has shown me through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's not a love that only belongs to me, it belongs to everybody who is called upon the name of Jesus to save them. We are children of an all-loving Father in heaven, a God who loved us so much that he was willing to send his only son to die for our trespasses and sins so that we might become his sons and his daughters. And I'm also thankful for some people in this world. I could not be more happy than to have Dean Ginrich as my dad. I call him Pap. I could not be more proud to have four children of my own. I call them crazy. And I could also not go without mentioning other father-like figures in my own life. And I'm sure that you have some of those too. Men who have meant the world to you. People who have been there to provide you direction. Or to provide you with money when you needed it. Or to provide you with advice or protection. For me it was people like baseball coaches growing up. A few teachers... My youth minister, Anders Lee, as well as pastors along the way. And my father-in-law, Wade Steelman, both of my grandfathers. We could go on and on. You could as well, mentioning names of men who have invested in you and spent time with you. And in fact, I heard from one of these men in my life a little bit earlier this week. I don't know if the name Mark Harris will ring a bell to you or not. But he gave me a phone call at the church office on Thursday. And, uh, and I picked up the phone and, and answered it and talked to him for just a moment. And I'm thankful for men like that that God put into my life to teach me some things about fighting the good fight of faith. And in the passage that we're going to read this morning, we find Paul, a spiritual father to Timothy encouraging this young man to keep fighting the good fight by standing on a solid foundation. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 with me this morning. And while you're turning there, just let me remind you that our foundation sets us up to either fall in failure or to stand in success. I'm going to tell you about another guy in my life. He may not have meant the world to me, but he taught me a few things. Coach, you'd be proud of me. I got a basketball instead of a baseball this morning. And uh, I remember Coach Lawrence in junior high basketball teaching us about having a solid foundation when we received the ball, being in the right position to do what we needed to do. And so Coach Lawrence would, uh, would make us stand there, and uh, he would hold a ball. And he'd start passing it to us. And whoever caught the ball had to go into what he called the, the triple threat stance or position. Anybody basketball people, you know how to do that whole thing? Tell me if I get this wrong. Where's Joseph Clayton? He's like super, super basketball guy. All right, so we'd catch the ball, and then we'd come just about here, right? So we'd protect the ball, we can guard the ball. And from that position, we could either dribble, we could pass, or we could shoot. And it was the thing that set us up to either fail or succeed by how we received the ball, what we did with it when we got it, how we set ourselves up, the foundation that we built our handling upon. And when Paul hands off to Timothy 
this gospel message, he's doing more than just passing him a ball and asking him to protect it or to score with it or to give it to somebody else. He is asking Timothy to guard the gospel message from false teachers. He's asking Timothy to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth. He's asking Timothy to invest in other people around him the same way that he invested into this young man. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to keep that idea of foundation in mind as we stand together and read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. We're going to stand and, and I'm going to read this aloud in honor of God's word. And I'm going to ask you, when we get to verse 16, to read this with me. All right? And uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, so if yours is a little bit different, that's fine. But I'll tell you to read aloud with me once we get there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now here's what I'm going to get you to read with me. If you've got a Bible, I want you to hold it up in front of you. And this is more precious than a basketball. You ready? Let's read together. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Amen. You can be seated. This is the foundation upon which we as Christian believers stand to fight the good fight. Paul was writing to Timothy, whom he had left to pastor the church at Ephesus in verse 14. He wanted to visit Timothy soon, but just in case he couldn't make the journey as timely as he desired, he gave written instructions that we take as inspired scripture in our day and time. These directions were meant to both help Timothy in his day, as well as to help believers today. God's church is called both the pillar and support of the truth here in verse 15. We know that Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. But the church is both the depository and the distributary of the Christian faith. That is, God has entrusted a message to us so that we can guard it and protect it, but also so that we can pass it on to others in the world around us. Paul's overarching charge to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 sets the tone for the entire letter. There he said, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Paul wanted Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, and that's what I want you to do as well. In order to fight this good fight, we must stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in Christ. And I want you to fight the good fight by standing on a solid foundation of confessional faith in God's Son, Jesus. You might ask what that solid foundation looks like or how a person can stand on it. And the answer is found in 1 Timothy 3.16. 
Specifically that section that we read aloud together. This verse is a quotation of six lines from an early church hymn. And though I won't sing them to you in the original Greek tongue this morning, I'll explain to you in as plain of English as I can so that you can stand on a firm foundation just like these first century believers. This stanza is best understood by noting the three lyrical parallels that are involved. You will notice that the subject of each line is Jesus Christ himself. Furthermore, each line after the first begins with a passive verb. See that? Was revealed, was vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed on, taken up. After those verbs follows a preposition. In, by, among, or on. And then after that preposition, each line ends with an object. Flesh, spirit, angels, nations, world, and glory. The objects in these three pairs are meant to stand in both complement and contrast to one another. The final estimation of, of all scholars who have studied this verse is that this hymn was nothing less than a beautiful articulation of common Christian confession. And it was perhaps so well known by these believers here in Ephesus that it was kind of like an unofficial sign of church membership. Kind of like we do with Southern Baptist hymns today. I said, hey, do you remember the words to Amazing Grace? You say, oh well, yeah. You might even start to sing it, even if you couldn't sing, because we just do that. So here's what I want to do with you this morning. I want to look together at this solid foundation upon which we can stand. And the words of this hymn point us to that solid foundation. First, we stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in Christ's incarnation. I know that's a big word, but it's not Greek. It's English, I promise. All right? Incarnate means that something takes upon itself some other form to be tangible and visible and representative. When we think about this in terms of Jesus Christ, what we come to realize is that God himself took on human flesh. A fundamental of the Christian faith is that Jesus is God's Son. And when people looked at Jesus, they saw God revealed to them. Jesus was revealed in the flesh, the first line of this hymn says. In Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is described as being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus came from heaven to earth, so that people might come to know the God who created them and the God who loves them. The fact that Jesus was miraculously born to the young girl named Mary, a virgin even, points to the fact that though he was a man, he was indeed no ordinary man. In both Greek mythology and Roman religion, the gods and goddesses would temporarily take upon themselves human form. Or deities would even be known to procreate with other human beings and their offspring would come to be known as demigods or superhuman. Take Hercules as an example. But in the case of Jesus' incarnation, we see something different. Jesus did not temporarily take on human flesh for a few interactions with people in this world. Rather, he was born as a baby. He lived as a boy and he died as a man. 
Neither did God in heaven engage in some gross erotic experience with Mary to cause her to get pregnant. But the Holy Spirit supernaturally placed Jesus within her womb. Jesus was thus not part man and part God, but fully God and fully man. We have to accept this and understand this as foundational for the Christian faith. You see, it's because Jesus is God that he could come and reveal God to us. And it's because he was man that he could serve as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was not another sacrifice like those of the Old Testament. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, could never fully forgive sin. Jesus represented both God in heaven and man on earth. But not only was he revealed in the flesh, he was also vindicated in the spirit. And there's really two ideas that are taking place here. The first is that Jesus was validated as God in flesh by the spiritual work he did while he was here on this earth. You think about the gospel accounts that record his life and his ministry. He lived a sinless life, though he faced temptation. Never once did he give in to the temptations of Satan or the temptations that were offered by the people around him. As he ministered and his, he taught, he taught as one with real authority. Not authority like the scribes and Pharisees had who put a rubber stamp of approval on their protégés, but as one who came directly from God speaking the very words of God. And when Jesus performed his miracles, he did so with power never before witnessed seen or heard. He could make the deaf to hear. He could cause the blind to see. He could raise the dead to life. Jesus is God in flesh. It's important to realize that and important to understand that. If you say, well, Jesus was not fully God or well, Jesus was not fully man, you've missed who Jesus is. Jesus is God's Son. He's been revealed to the world. He came and was born and placed in a manger there in the city of Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth and ministered in Judea and was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. He lived as a man. 100% man, 100% God. We stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in Christ's incarnation. Second, we stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in Christ's resurrection. We stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in Christ's resurrection. The second idea with this phrase was vindicated in the spirit is that Jesus was also vindicated when he rose back to life. If nothing else proved that Jesus was God, coming back to life surely did. And here's why. There are accounts in Scripture of people before Jesus coming back to life from the dead. We take Lazarus from John chapter 11 as a prime example. We see even people in the Old Testament that were dead. Their bones were dried up and the bones came back to life. But with Jesus, there's something even greater happening. 
You see, when Lazarus came back to life, he would once again die. But when Jesus came back to life, he came back to life never to die again. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 goes on to say after Jesus is described as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, it says that he sat down at the right hand of God after he made purification for sins. And when he sat down there at the right hand of God in heaven, he was seen by angels. That is, the angels were there testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. They are gathered around the throne, worshiping him with shouts of acclamation. But Jesus Christ wasn't just seen by angels in heaven. He was also proclaimed among the nations of this earth. Let me just stop and think about this with me for a moment. Jesus Christ was born, lived, and died somewhere around 2,000 years ago, right? The fact that we are still here today worshiping Him and telling people they can be saved in His name is proof that He really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, This is not just a religious movement that gained traction under falsehood. This is eternal life presented through the preaching of the gospel message, the preaching of the good news. In fact, after Jesus died, when you read the gospel accounts, the disciples have run away in fear. The only one of the twelve who was there at the hill of Calvary was John. Judas had betrayed him, Peter had denied him, the others are just scattered all over the place. And after the reports that Jesus' tomb is empty began to circulate, and Peter and John had seen the empty tomb, along with some of the women, and then there's some reports from guys on the road to Emmaus, and even from some of these same women, that they've actually seen Jesus alive. The disciples are gathered in her upper room, huddled in fear. Because rumors had also been spreading that the disciples stole Jesus' body and told everybody that he was alive. So they're probably hiding from the authorities so they don't get in trouble, arrested, or executed. After all, they had witnessed from afar what Jesus had gone through with his crucifixion. But yet the time that Jesus enters into that upper room with them and makes himself known to his disciples... And shows them the scars in his hands and his feet and his side. Where he took the nails and where the spear was thrust through him. The disciples begin to realize Jesus really is alive. And they didn't just themselves realize Jesus was alive. But they continued to gather together and to seek the Lord's presence. And the Lord Jesus told them that they would be his witnesses First in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then even to the uttermost, the remotest parts of the earth. And these disciples, according to church history, die for proclaiming their faith, for preaching the good news. Why in the world would you live your life and would you die your death all for the sake of preaching good news about a man who claims to have died for the sins of the world and then rose again if it was not true. 
Jesus Christ really did come back to life. If we fail to believe that, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our lives are in vain. Everything is vain. Our preaching is vain. We're wasting our time on this earth. But he goes on to tell that church that if the resurrection is true, and if Jesus Christ coming up from the dead is real, then in fact, we have the greatest treasure in history. We have the greatest treasure in eternity because we have life forever in His name. Sin has no victory and death has no sting because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. We stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in His resurrection. And then third, we see in the final two lines of this quoted hymn that we stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in Christ's glorification. We stand on a solid foundation by confessing faith in Christ's glorification. And Christ's glorification is described in these final two lines of this hymn quotation. During his earthly ministry, Jesus declared, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This is what he said in John 12, 32. And he spoke those words in prophetic reference to his execution on a Roman cross. The Romans would, would either tie people, or in Jesus' case, they would nail people to the cross on the ground, and then they would lift them up. Jesus was lifted up from the earth. But not only was he lifted up, he also would draw all men to himself. A salvific reference. Here in this lyric, believed on in the world, in verse 16, we see this prophecy as having been fulfilled. That is, the promise is true. Jesus actually saves people when they believe in Him. Certainly not everyone will believe, but when people do believe, they will most certainly be saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 tells us that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus was believed on in the world, and He is believed on in the world today. And how great of an assurance as we go out to fight the good fight is it that Jesus does indeed save people. If He didn't, why would we bother to go on with the struggle? But since He does save, let us not fail to continue to battle to see Jesus save souls. Was it not awesome to begin the worship service this morning with watching eight baptisms on the screen behind me? Jesus really does save people. When they believe in Him, He gives them new life. So we must preach Jesus and Him crucified. If we do not preach the cross of Christ, we cannot see souls won to Christ. But if we do preach the cross of Christ, we cannot lose the fight. Not only is Jesus' glorification demonstrated in His salvation of the lost, we also see His glory displayed in his ascension to heaven after his resurrection. Now it might seem kind of strange to talk about the preaching of the gospel to all the nations and belief in Jesus among the world before his ascension. But one commentator noted this, the sixth line of the song was taken up in glory uses a verb that elsewhere in the New Testament describes the ascension of Jesus into the clouds. 
since that ascension preceded the, the preaching of the gospel, we might think it's out of order to mention it at this point. However, Jesus ordered the preaching of the gospel before the act of his ascension. And it is this order that the hymn follows. And rightly so. Because people believed in Jesus because they saw him alive. They preached the good news because they saw him alive. They preached the good news because they saw him go up into glory. Jesus saves people, so we keep fighting the good fight. But he's also seated on the throne of heaven as the victorious king. When he went into the clouds, he went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Right there at the very throne of God. And if we set our minds above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, then we will not lose the fight because we are already victorious in Him. Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite preachers, said it this way. We don't fight the good fight so that we can win. We fight the good fight because we've already won. Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight. He said, Timothy, you don't fight the good fight. You're fighting a losing battle. But if you fight the good fight, you are already victorious. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We fight the good fight by standing on a solid foundation through confessing faith in Christ's glorification. Now, fighting the good fight itself is not an easy task, but it's a worthwhile one. You can fight this fight worthily and you can win the fight of faith by keeping your spiritual feet on a solid foundation. Jesus came to this earth and was born as a man to sacrifice himself for the redemption of humanity. After his death, he arose victorious from the grave to receive the praise of the angels in heaven and extend forgiveness to all peoples through the preaching of the good news. He brings salvation to all who call upon his name in faith and surrender. And one day he is returning from heaven in the same way he went to heaven. And he will reign over all of creation as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the confession. You say, Jake, it's great. I know all that stuff. I've heard you talk about all that stuff from this pulpit. Why are we talking about it again today? Because if you stand on anything else, you will fail and you will fall. But if you stand on Jesus Christ, you will stand and you will succeed and you will win the fight. Mark Harris, our former pastor, helped me learn how to preach funerals. He really did. It might sound strange to say, but of everything that he taught me, I'm think I'm most thankful for that I think it may be because I've done like 70 something funerals now literally Lord no I needed some encouragement and direction and he provided brother Mark there to teach me but I remember after helping brother Mark officiate a funeral he said uh, he said Jake I, I want that song sung, sung at my funeral I said which one he said, the hymn, One Day, that we just sang earlier. You don't have to get your hymnals out now and look at it, but if you ever want to in the future, it's number 288. The hymn is just called One Day. 
a contemporary group casting crowns came out with a version of it. They, they called it Glorious Day. But the chorus simply goes like this, and it's just it's six statements. They're really foundational to our faith in Christ. It's a good common confession, I think, of what we say that we believe, or what we say we're willing to live for, and what we say we're willing to, to die for. And it goes like this. Living he loved me, and dying he saved me, and buried he carried my sins far away, and rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Folks, that's what we stand on. I want to ask if you're standing on that foundation. When you come to the end of your life, or when you live in right in the middle of it, do you hear the words of that song? Do you read the words of this scripture and the lyrics of that hymn that were quoted? And say, that's it. That's where I'm standing. That's where I'm planting my feet. That's what I want to build my life upon. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? You've heard his word preached. Maybe God has spoken to your heart and is calling you to express faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. To confess that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, that He was buried and that He rose again. And maybe you've never made that confession of faith before. Maybe today it's time to become a son of the Father in heaven. Confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'll be standing down here in the front. Our praise team is playing through this last song. If you need to speak with me about that, I'd be happy to do so. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for a long time. And you know the foundation that is in Christ. And where you should be building your life. But let's just be honest. You've been building your life and spending your time and efforts and energies. Building your own kingdom and your own empire on a foundation of hay and stubble and straw and sand. Maybe it's time to come back to the Lord today and say, Jesus, I, I know that you are the king of my life. Forgive me for taking back control. I want to give everything back over to you. Maybe you need to request baptism or join our church or maybe you just need to come down to the altar and, and spend some time in prayer to the Lord, asking him to save people around you, family or friends. As God calls you this morning, would you come to him?